With that, we turn now to God's Word. The prophecy of Zechariah. We uh, turn to the first chapter of Zechariah, verses 7 to 17. That's really the first vision he, uh, that the Lord gives to Zechariah for the sake of the people, to encourage the people with his promises. You notice that he begins by saying to the people, to, his pe- to God's people, return to me and I will return to you. And now in verses 7 through 17, you see how, by God's grace, the people return to the Lord in repentance and faith. And that's always the beginning point. Those are always the signs of how God begins to gather his church. Through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? That when there's repentance, it's really the grace of God that works that in our hearts. That's the, uh, the amazing, that's a miracle, really. And now in verses 7 through 17, God says, all right, I am with you, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to show you my promises. In spite of how hard life is, how difficult life is, in spite of all the trials, don't give in to the cultures around you and to the gods around you. You, you stay loyal to me, because after all, I've been, uh, God shows how he's been loyal to them. And he will keep them. He will preserve them. But you trust in me. And I will lead you into the future. So it's a, it's a very powerful, um, action-packed uh, vision that's before us. And you see a bit of an explanation of it as well in verses 12 through 17. So we begin reading at verse 7 of Zechariah 1 all the way to verse 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, so that's three days, sorry, three months after uh, the first word that Zechariah brought, which is the month Shabbat. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood amongst the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Which, by the way, is a negative thing here. Because look at verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words, So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous, or another translation is jealous, for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. 
again proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So that's, uh, that's also our text this morning. because there's, uh, It all fits together, those uh, 10 verses, 11 verses that are before us. You know, sometimes in our lives we just feel really, really low. I think those are times where Satan can so much tempt us and say, you know what, why, what's the worth of following Christ? Why don't we just give in and enjoy the successes of the culture around us rather than endure this, this uh, kind of suffering and hardship and troubles and fighting against sin and temptation? You know, the people of God at this time were feeling in much way, to, in a similar way, feeling really, really low. And you think about it, they still see all the results of their sin around them, all the ruins, right? Sin brings ruin. And you see the, the, the calamity, the, you know, the, the broken temple, which is now beginning to be rebuilt. You see the city of Jerusalem, the place where God's name was, was to dwell, still in ruins. You know, they must have been thinking, is it too late? Is, is there any hope to begin again? Is there any way that we can still uh, believe that God will fulfill his promises for us? Look how bad we were. And will God still come to us? Will God still fulfill his promises? And there's no sign whatsoever of the Messiah taking the throne. Right? Taking over the throne of the world. Look how depressing it is. Who are they under? They were so used to being under all the Davidic kings, all the dates throughout, you know, Samuel and, and the kings was always according to this king and that king of Israel. But now what is it? It's dated according to a foreign king, a Persian king, who ruled over the empire, a Persian empire. His name is Darius. What's going on, Lord? What, where are you at? What are you doing for us? It seems like there was nothing really happening for the church in those days. You see in verse 7, the 24th day, the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat. Shabbat is a Babylonian name for that month. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. But notice here, the second year of Darius. They've been under Persian rule for... I mean, since 539, now it's about 519, so 20 years. Cyrus, now Darius. But you know, the Lord in the midst of it, it's also an encouragement for us. This is not just for back then, but it's an encouragement for us. The Lord in the midst gives us visions. Actually, he gives eight visions to the prophet Zechariah for the benefit of his people. And he gives all eight visions in one night. I don't think Zechariah slept at all. He was awake probably all night long. One night, eight visions. That brings us all the way to Zechariah 6, verse 8. All that takes place in one night. And the Lord's, the Lord's purpose here is to encourage his people. Don't look at what's around you. Don't look, look at within you. Don't look at the circumstances of your life. You look to me. You believe the promises. 
And he wants to encourage him with the promises of the future. To trust in him. That's what the whole point of those eight visions are. And in this first vision, okay, he sees a vision of four horsemen. You see four horsemen there. And he shows Jesus. In this vision, as we'll see, he shows Jesus, who's the ruler of the earth, living among his downtrodden, his sorrow-filled, his heartbroken, repentant people. Oh, yes. He will gather his church. He will build his church so that his church will be the capital of the world. Not Athens, but Jerusalem. Right? It will be the capital of the world. The church is the capital of the world. And that's where this vision is going. And that's where it really concludes in verses 16 and 17. It's a marvelous ending there. But first begins with a vision. We're going to see, first of all, the message in the vision, verses 9 through, or sorry, 8 through 11. And then we're going to see the comfort, the great comfort of God's promises in this vision, verses 12 through 17. Notice that God gives these promises in order to encourage the people to be faithful. <laughs> Don't get sidetracked by the, by, the, uh, by the issues of this world. You keep your eyes focused. Be faithful to me in your lives, in your church, in your families. So first of all, we see the vision, the message. What's the message in this vision? This vision, by the way, is not the same as a dream. In a dream, you're passive and you're just receiving everything. Right? But here, in this vision, Zechariah remains awake. And he's able to participate in what he sees. Um, it's amazing. This is one of the ways that God would communicate his word uh, during the Bible times. And he would communicate through visions. That's one way. He would communicate his word. And Zechariah, in this vision, what does he see? Try to draw this. It'd be a nice picture to paint. But what does he see? Zechariah sees himself posted on a hilltop, and right beside him is an angel. And this angel's the one who's talking with him. He's interpreting the vision to him. Okay? And down below, way down below, in the valley, he sees a man riding a red horse. And it comes to a stop. And it stands. This horse with the rider stands among, it's called the myrtle trees. We'll see what that is in a moment, what that means. But behind that red horse in the valley, among the myrtle trees, there is a circumference of three horses. Right? The red, the white, and the sorrel. Sorrel is kind of like a chestnut color, apparently. It's apparently very hard to translate, but that's the best I could come to. So a red, a chestnut, and a white horse. These three horses have come back from a commission on behalf of the Lord to survey the entire earth. Because after all, who's in charge of the earth? Not Darius. Not, not the local leaders of the world. But it's the Lord. He's on the throne. And he sends these three horses with swiftness and thoroughness. They investigate. They survey the entire earth. And they're there now to report to that one that's in the valley among the myrtle trees of their results 
of their conclusions. You could say that one on the red horse is the, you could say, the commanding officer, the one who sent them out, and now comes back with a report of their findings. What's the Lord saying? Well, right away it becomes apparent what the focus of this vision is. The focus of the vision is on this red horse with the rider on it, who's down below in the valley, among the myrtle trees. reason why we know it's a focus, why? Because you know three times in verses 7 through 11, it talks about the man who stood, who stood among the myrtle trees. You see that in verse 8? You see that in verse 10? Verse 11. So this is, you could say, if you were to paint a picture of this, this would be the, your eye would focus on that figure, on that red horse with a rider on it. Who's the man riding it? Who's the man that's riding this red horse? Verse 11 identifies him. If you look at verse 11, capital A, at least in the New King James Version, capital A, angel of the Lord. And we know from other Old Testament scripture passages, think of Genesis 16, Genesis 18, Joshua 5, anytime you see the capitalized angel of the Lord, refers to one who's divine, who's the Lord himself. In this case, he's the Son of God, the divine one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he was born, before, you know, before Jesus took birth in Bethlehem, he would often appear to his people as the angel of the Lord among his people. I mean, Jesus is present. The Son of God has been from all eternity. And the promises of the Old Testament, it's all centered in Christ. And so this is who he is. And what's he riding? A red horse. What does red remind you of? The color? Blood? And it's associated with judgment and war. You know what they don't? This one on the red horse is willing to endure the conflict for us, even resisting to death. Resisting to death with the shedding of his own blood for his own people. There he is. He's standing. He's ready to enter into the conflict for his people to defeat our enemies. The enemies that seem to have so much power over us. He's there. He's going to engage in that conflict. He is going to defend. He's going to guard his people. The rider on the red horse. Now, that's the one thing. But what's all, what else is important here is, look where he is. Is he way up on the top of the hills? No. The man in the red horse, they stood among the myrtle trees. It says, in the hollow. Or another translation is, in the glen. Uh, that would be a ravine. And the sense here is, it was at the very bottom of the valley. He's among the myrtle trees. And the myrtle trees in this vision represent God's people here. Think of Isaiah 55, 13. It describes the myrtle tree replacing the briar in the wilderness. Israel's pictured as a myrtle tree. Myrtle tree, what was that like? It was a very small bush. A bush-like tree, maybe eight 10 feet tall at the highest, 
had green leaves, had white clusters of, of fragrant flowers. And apparently those white petals of those flowers, they give off such a fragrance, especially when they were crushed. Right? They would give off a beautiful smell. And being small, it illustrates really the insignificance of God's people in the eyes of the world. The powers to be. Hey, think of our world today. All those powers, they think they're in control of the world and they're going to teach the church a lesson. But no. Really, it really illustrates that Christ, the angel of the Lord, is among a lowly, insignificant people compared to the world powers. Who? Assyria? The cedar of Lebanon. Stately, majestic tree. Israel? Shrub. Myrtle trees. Big difference. You know, and the blossoms that gave off a sweet fragrance when crushed is a picture of God showing his grace to people in a time of difficulty, in a time of suffering, in a time of trial. See where the Lord is? He's amongst the contrite. He's amongst the lowly, among his people. Being at the bottom of the valley points to the low condition of his people. See that? Jesus, the ruler of the world, he's not going to be sitting in palaces with Putin and Trudeau. He sits among his people. Wow. He lives among his people. He's there, and he's going to defend them. He's going to be there for them. And notice, regarding those three horses, this is a kind of incidental, but also really important. So if you were to draw a picture of this, this would kind of be in the background. You see the three horses kind of forming a circumference. The red, the chestnut, and the white horses. And Zechariah, he now asks the angel beside him, who's interpreting. He says, my Lord, that's more of a title of respect. He says, what are these? He's wondering what's going on. What are these three horses all about? And so the angel who talked with me, it's not the angel of the Lord, but it's the angel who talked with him. He said to me, I will show you what they are. And the angel who explains this to him is really, again, it's not the angel that's among the, uh, among the myrtle trees, but it's the angel who's talking to him in his vision. And yet, who's the one who responds to Zechariah? The one who stood among the myrtle trees. He answers in a direct way. In verse 10, he said, These are the ones, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. Imagine drawing that. Three horses with swiftness and thoroughness, expediting their mission in moments, surveying the world. They're angels. The riders on those horses are angels. Who are the angels? They're ministers of God who carry out his bidding. They're there to serve God in his mission. On behalf of whom? Always on behalf of his people. At least when it regards to peace. Right? When it comes to defending his people. All the angels will also destroy. God sends them out to destroy and confuse the wicked. But on behalf of his people, they're there to carry out his mission on behalf of the church. Having come back, 
they now report to the commander of the army, to that red horse. And he's going to tell them, they're going to tell him everything that they found. And what do they say? Verse 11. We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. What's that mean? The earth is resting quietly. All is at peace and rest. How disappointing. Why is all the earth at peace and rest and the church so much at unrest? In the days of Zechariah, right, the Persian Empire was at peace and rest after Darius took some time to fight his enemies and secure peace for his own domain. But think about the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah oh, sorry, of Haggai. What did, what did Haggai say? Haggai said, was predicting that there would be the shaking of the earth and the heavens. That's not peaceful. We want, we want to see the Lord at work shaking up the powers of the earth. We want to see the Lord bringing unrest. Because that's often what the Lord uses to bring people into the kingdom, to build his kingdom. Where is that? How disappointing. The thrones of the kings of the world are not being toppled. They're not being overthrown. Darius is still there in his power. There's no sign of the Messiah, the king taking over. Think of Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper? And God's people have endure hard difficulties. They have it up so well, don't they? And how come it has to be sometimes not easy for us? Think of Psalm 73. How long will that continue? You know, God's providence in our lives is not always easy to read. But we shouldn't just look with the physical eye. What does faith do? It grasps beyond our own limited understanding and it grasps Christ by faith. Believing that he works out all things for the good of those who love him. Always. Always. All things for the good of those who love him. And so you see in verses 12 through 17, the angel Lord comforts his people with his promises. Actually with three promises. The first one is, this angel of the Lord takes up the cause of his people. The angel of the Lord himself is disappointed. Right? You see that in verse 12? The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long? See that? How long? He's not happy with the peace and rest either. How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry for 70 years? Here you see the angel of the Lord interceding in the presence of the Father on behalf of his people. That's just the New Testament. <laughs> you already see it happening in the Old Testament. But it's so much richer, it's so much fuller for us today, for his people. What a comfort to know that he, he intercedes on behalf of the church, the church which he brought or bought with his precious blood. 1 John 2 verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or think of Hebrews 7.25. He is also the Savior to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession 
for them. How does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus do that? Don't forget, he's going to resist our enemies even to his own bloodshed. And it's on that basis that he hears us. On the basis of his finished sacrifice that's coming in Zechariah's day, that he hears us. He always hears us. He hears the cries of his people. And he will answer them in his way, which will always be perfect. We don't, and might not always see the answers. Or we might not always like the answers the way he answers them. But he will answer it perfectly in his way, in his own time. And so God's troubled people hear these reassuring words in verse 13. In regards to the intercession. And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. <laughs> you see that? With good and comforting words. Leave it there. It doesn't say what those good and comforting words were. But we can believe that the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to bring comfort to his people. It doesn't end with the powers around here. They may have great pride and prowess and sound very strong. But who's the king? The one who sits on the red horse. The angel of the Lord. The savior in your midst. Be careful, world. Watch out. It's time to believe. It's time to submit to the Son. There's no other way of salvation. That's the first thing. He intercedes. He doesn't intercede for the world. He intercedes, as he says in John 17, he says, I do not pray for those in the world. I pray for those whom you, Father, have given to me. And that's what he's doing here. He's praying for his people. Second thing. So the first thing is intercession. Jesus prays. The second thing is really, really comforting. Jesus is jealous for his people. Jealous. The ruler over our lives, the one who lives in our midst, comforts you with his jealousy for you. See verse 14? So the angel who spoke with me said to me, cry out, proclaim to the people, let them understand. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. That zeal, by the way, is the same as jealousy. Right? Kanah. Kanah. He's jealous for his people. Don't think of this as a bad jealousy. It's a good jealousy. I think the best way to illustrate it is in a marriage. Anyone who touches your wife touches the apple of your eye. The church is the Lord's bride. Anyone who touches the Lord's bride touches the apple of his eye. You know, you jealously guard your honor from the... You, you jealously guard the honor of your wife from the attacks of others. That's one thing. And the other thing is, neither will you allow your wife to be shared with another. And that's the kind of jealousy the Lord has for his people. Oh, that's why he doesn't want us forsaking him and going into the world. He wants us to remain committed to him, to trust him, to live our lives faithfully, believing those promises that are before us. Yes, the Lord speaks of his jealousy. The Lord can't stand it if anyone attacks the honor of his bride. 
It's happening all over the world. Persecution, martyrdom, but the Lord can't stand it. And those horses will bring out his punishment upon those who do not repent. Very clear in Scripture. He protects his bride. Of course, the bride understands that he's the one who has conquered sin, death, and hell. The world doesn't see that. But he is jealous for her. He was willing to give up his only begotten son on the cross to pay for her sins, get her back, and to defend her. See verse 15? You see jealousy on the one hand for his people, but on the other hand, God answers that he will destroy the kingdoms of the earth. He assures the people that the kingdom, his kingdom will replace them. Verse 15, I am, there's the other side of it. I am exceedingly angry with the nations who are at ease. Nations who think that they have it all in their hands. Who think that prosperity comes from them. Prosperity comes from their hands. God says, I'm angry with the nations at ease. I was a little angry. He's referring to his own people when he put them into exile. But that was just for a short time. He says, but the nations, they went too far with my people. They wanted to destroy my people completely. And God said, no, enough is enough. And this perhaps explains why the angel of the Lord, the ruler of the nations, is shown on a red horse. He's ready. He's ready to go on his mission. Of course, the mission is when? When he descended onto earth, became a baby. To destroy the works of the devil. We're getting ahead of ourselves. First thing is, he intercedes, he prays for his people. Second of all, he's jealous for those who trust on him, who believe on him, his people. And the third thing is, the comfort of his promises. He says, I have returned with compassion and my house will be rebuilt. Verse 16, see that? Thus says the Lord, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. The Lord has returned. How do we, see, how do we know the Lord has returned? The angel of the Lord in the, among the myrtle trees. He has returned. Zechariah sees the vision. And he mentions three specific promises. First, my house, says the Lord, will be built. And no enemy can destroy it. No enemy can resist it, ultimately, but it will stand. It will stand. My house will stand. That's the first thing. The second thing, the work of rebuilding his house will extend beyond into the whole city. Brampton, GTA. Of course, in that day, it was Jerusalem. Third thing, and it will extend even beyond the city. Think of throughout the world. Verse 17, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. God's church will be built and his kingdom will expand in spite of all the suffering and all the persecution and all the hardship that we see in our lives today. Wow. By the way, what's part of that prosperity? You know what? The ease and the stillness of the nations... That's not true peace. 
The true peace is shalom. And shalom, what is that? It's the forgiveness that we have from the ruler of the nations. The one who bled, who shed his blood on the cross. That's true peace. The world don't have it. The Lord is going to remove that peace from the world. And maybe sometimes it takes that for them to realize that true peace, true shalom, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, renewal, a new creation, the vastness of his kingdom, the growth of his kingdom. Jesus, the angel of the Lord, he did. He came to enter the conflict. How? By becoming a baby. By becoming, by taking upon himself our human nature in every way except without sin. Born in Bethlehem, in a stable, lowly, lowly circumstances. Talk about a valley. <laughs> a valley. To, for what purpose? To live among his lowly people who have no name, no identity. He came to restore that identity. And he went lower than that. He went lower than the bottom of the valley. He went down to the cross. He went down into the grave. To do what? He did all of that so that he could take upon himself our sin, our miseries. Don't you feel low sometimes? He came to take all of that upon himself. Our sins, our miseries, our pains, the results of sin in our lives. He came to take all of that upon ourselves. So full of love is he for his bride. He came to endure, to suffer, and to conquer all of that through the cross and death and resurrection. God's zeal has been shown in all its fullness. John 3.16 His zeal? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, O kings. Listen, you rulers of the world. If you don't submit to me, I will remove the peace from you. And yes, the shaking of the nations, the shaking of heaven and earth has begun today, hasn't it? How? Through the word of God. Right? It shakes people down to see ultimately their own need for a savior, or for many it does. Wow. It's hard to think of Zechariah 1 without thinking of Revelation 1. There's so many parallels. Because in Zechariah 1, where is he? He's in the valley among the myrtle trees. Revelation occurs near the end of the New Testament, just as Zechariah's vision occurs near the end of the Old Testament. In Revelation, where do you see the risen ascended Lord? He's pictured also as standing. Where? In the midst, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Where are the seven golden lampstands? It represents the church or the churches of Jesus Christ. Wow. You know what? Today, too, you know, the church may have many disappointments. And we may pray sometimes, how long, O oh Lord? We have our perplexities. 
We, we sometimes grieve over what we see and how the church seems to be so small. But that's only with the physical eye. Remember, we have one today who's seated on the throne, not in the valley, but in the heavens, who's interceding, who remains jealous for his people, and who is fulfilling his promises, and his gospel will continue to spread throughout the entire nation, throughout the entire world, and his kingdom will continue to grow. Our call is simply to believe it, to believe his promises, and to be faithful in his work, in his kingdom. Think kingdom. When we think of our lives, don't think of our own lives, but think of Christ and his kingdom. That's where the future is. His kingdom. His glory. And God is very busy today working for his people. We might not always see it, but we see by faith. We see him working, even in the midst of the persecution and suffering of the church. The end will come. Yes, the shaking of the heavens and earth will ultimately come when Christ returns again. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power, says 1 Corinthians 15. And that promise of a new creation, eternal life for all, who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ to save them. This is the promise. This is the greatest promise. And all the other promises flow out from that. At a Zoom meeting, we just heard this this past week in war-torn Ukraine. At a Zoom meeting with representatives of the Wright Seminary in war-torn Ukraine, A pastor shared some words to encourage the church there. We often get worried about our thumb when it gets injured. But when you're in war-torn Ukraine, the church there, you don't have time to think about your thumb. Your perspective changes in a big way. And there, the pastor said, throughout history, as now, we see the temporary prosperity or elevation of the wicked Yet we know that the wicked are only pawns in God's hands who will ultimately be swept away. It happened with Nebuchadnezzar. It will happen with Putin. It will happen with Trudeau. Unless they come to repentance and believe and submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the angel of the Lord among the myrtle trees, among his suffering, among his often heartbroken, sin kind of people. And you know what? The Bible says that the kingdoms of this world today belongs or have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen.